93 by Victor Hugo, Part 3, Book 6 The Marquis had indeed gone back into the grave. He was led away. The dungeon on the ground floor of the Torg was immediately opened under Simordan's stern gaze. A lamp, a jug of water, a loaf of bread, and a bundle of straw were placed inside it and less than a quarter of an hour after the priest's hand had seized the marquis, he was locked in the dungeon. When this had been done, Simordan went back to Gauvin. Just then the clock in the faraway steeple of Parigny struck eleven. Simordan said to Gauvin, "'I'm going to convoke a court-martial. You won't be a member of it. You're a Gauvin, and Lantanac is a Gauvin.' You're too closely related to him, to judge him. I condemn Egalité for having judged Capet. The court-martial will be composed of three judges, one officer, Captain Gaychamp, one non-commissioned officer, Sergeant Radoube, and myself, who will preside. None of this concerns you any longer. We'll comply with the decree of the Convention." We'll limit ourselves to ascertaining the identity of the former Marquis de Lantanac. Tomorrow, the court-martial. Day after tomorrow, the guillotine. Vendée is dead. Gauvin made no answer. Preoccupied by the final task he still had to carry out, Simordan left him. Simordan had times to set and places to choose. Like Lequinio at Granville, Tallien at Bordeaux, Chalier at Lyon, and Saint-Just at Strasbourg, it was his habit, reputed to set a good example, to attend executions in person. The judge came to watch the executioner's work. It was a custom which the reign of terror of ninety-three had borrowed from the French parliaments and the Spanish Inquisition. Gauvin, too, was preoccupied. A cold wind was blowing from the forest. Leaving Gaychamp to give the necessary orders, Gauvin went to his tent, which was in the meadow on the edge of the woods, at the foot of the torg, took his hooded cloak, and put it on. This cloak was edged with that simple braid which, in accordance with Republican usage, sparing of ornamentation, designated the commander-in-chief. He began walking in the bloody meadow where the assault had begun. He was alone. The fire was still burning, but it was now ignored. Radoub was with the children and their mother, almost as maternal as she. The building on the bridge had nearly finished burning. The sappers were taking measures to prevent the fire from spreading. Graves were being dug, the dead were being buried, and wounds were being dressed. The rhetoric had been demolished. Corpses were being removed from the rooms and the stairs. The scene of carnage was being cleaned. The terrible rubbish of victory was being swept away. With military rapidity, the soldiers were doing what might be called the housework at the end of a battle. Gauvin saw nothing of all this. In his reverie, he scarcely glanced at the guards at the breach, doubled by Simordan's order. He could distinguish the breach in the darkness, two hundred paces from the corner of the meadow in which he had, as it were, taken refuge. He saw the black opening. 
It was there that the attack had begun three hours before. It was there that he had entered the tower. There was the ground floor where the rhetoric had been, and on that same floor was the door to the dungeon in which the Marquis was now imprisoned. The sentries at the breach were guarding the dungeon. While his eyes were vaguely perceiving the breach, his ears confusedly heard these words return like the tolling of a knell. Tomorrow, the court martial. Day after tomorrow, the guillotine. The fire had been isolated, and the sappers were throwing onto it all the water they could get, but it was not dying down without resistance, and it still burst forth in intermittent flames. Occasionally one could hear beams cracking and parts of the collapsing floors falling on one another. Sparks would then swirl up as though from a shaken torch. A glare as bright as lightning would light up the far reaches of the horizon, and the shadow of the Torg, suddenly gigantic, would stretch all the way to the forest. Govan walked slowly back and forth in the darkness in front of the breach. Now and then he crossed his hands behind his head, which was covered by his military hood. He was thinking. His reverie was fathomless. A seemingly inexplicable change had just taken place. The Marquis de Lantanac had been transfigured. Gauvin had witnessed that transfiguration. He would never have believed that such a thing could result from a combination of happenings, no matter what they might be. He could never have imagined, even in his dreams, that anything similar could take place. The unexpected, that arrogant power which plays with man, had seized Gauvin and held him fast. He had before him an impossibility which had become real, visible, palpable, unavoidable, and inexorable. What did he think of it? It was no time for equivocation. He had to reach a conclusion. A question had been put to him, and he could not elude it. Put to him by whom? By events. And not only by events. For when events, which are variable, ask us a question, justice, which is immutable, calls on us to answer. Behind the cloud, which casts its shadow on us, there is the star, which casts its light on us. We cannot escape the light any more than we can escape the shadow. Gauvin was undergoing a cross-examination. He had been summoned to appear before someone before someone formidable, his conscience. He felt everything wavering around him. His most solid resolutions, his firmest promises, his most irrevocable decisions, all these things were tottering in the depths of his will. There are tremblings of the soul. The more he thought about what he had just seen, the more confused he became. Gauvin, a Republican, believed himself to be, and actually was, in the Absolute. A superior Absolute had just revealed itself. Above the Revolutionary Absolute, there is the Human Absolute. What was happening could not be evaded. 
The situation was grave, and he was part of it. He could not withdraw from it. Even though Simorden had said to him, None of this concerns you any longer, he felt within himself what a tree must feel when it is pulled up by its roots. Every man has a base. When this base is shaken, a profound disturbance results. Gauvin now felt that disturbance. He pressed his head between his hands, as though to squeeze the truth out of it. It is not easy to state such a situation clearly. Nothing is more difficult than to simplify the complex. He had before him a set of formidable figures which he had to add up. To find the total of destiny, what a staggering enterprise! He tried it. He endeavored to understand. He strove to assemble his ideas, to discipline the resistance he felt inside himself, and to recapitulate the facts. He set them forth to himself. Is there any man who has not made a report to himself and questioned himself in some extreme situation about the course he should follow either to advance or to retreat? Gauvin had just witnessed a wonder. At the same time as the earthly combat, there had been a celestial combat, the combat of good against evil. A stern heart had just been vanquished. Given man with all that is bad in him, violence, error, blindness, unhealthy obstinacy, pride, selfishness, Gauvin had just seen a miracle, the victory of humanity over man. Humanity had vanquished the inhuman. And by what means, in what way, how had it overcome a colossus of anger and hatred? What weapons had it employed? What machine of war? The cradle. Gauvin had been bewildered. In the midst of a civil war, when hostility and vengeance were blazing hotly, at the darkest and most furious moment of the tumult, when crime was casting all its flames and hatred all its shadows, at that stage of a struggle when everything becomes a projectile, when the fighting is so fierce that one no longer knows what is just, honest, or true, the unknown, the mysterious warner of souls, had made the great eternal radiance shine forth above all human light and darkness. Above the somber duel between the false and the relative, in the depths, the face of truth had suddenly appeared. The strength of the weak had abruptly intervened. Gauvin had seen the triumph of three poor little children, almost newborn, unreasoning, abandoned, orphaned, alone, stammering, smiling, having against them civil war, retaliation, the horrible logic of reprisals, murder, carnage, fratricide, rage, rancor, and all the gorgons. He had seen atrocious plots foiled. He had seen the ancient feudal ferocity, the old inexorable disdain, the professed experience of the necessities of war, reasons of state, and all the arrogant prejudices of fierce old age, 
vanish before the blue-eyed gaze of those who had not yet lived. And this was natural, for he who has not yet lived has done no evil. He is justice, he is truth, he is purity, and the immense angels of heaven are in little children. It was a useful spectacle, a counsel, a lesson. Amid outrages, atrocities, fanaticism, assassination, vengeance blowing on the flames, and death arriving, torch in hand, the frenzied combatants of a merciless war had suddenly seen all-powerful innocence rise above the enormous legion of crimes. And innocence had conquered. And one could say, no, civil war does not exist, Barbarity does not exist. Hatred does not exist. Crime does not exist. Darkness does not exist. All that is needed in order to disperse those specters is the dawn we call childhood. Never in any combat had Satan and God been more clearly visible. That combat had taken place in a conscience. Lantanac's conscience. Now it was beginning again, perhaps fiercer and more decisive than before, in another conscience. Gauvin's conscience. What a battlefield man is. We are in the hands of those gods, those monsters, those giants. Our thoughts. Those terrible belligerents often trample our soul underfoot. Gauvin was meditating. The Marquis de Lantanac, surrounded, hemmed in, doomed, outlawed, captured like an animal in a cage, like a nail in a pair of pincers, shut up in his den which had become his prison, closed in on all sides by a wall of iron and fire, had succeeded in slipping away. He had performed the miracle of escaping, he had accomplished the most difficult task of all in such a war—flight. He had regained possession of the forest to entrench himself in it, of the countryside to fight in it, of the shadows to disappear into them. He had again become the dreaded wanderer, the captain of the invisible, the leader of underground men, the master of the woods. Gauvin had victory but Lantanac had freedom. Henceforth Lantanac would have safety, an unlimited field of action and an inexhaustible choice of sanctuaries. He was inaccessible, impossible to catch or even to find. The lion had been caught in a trap and had escaped from it. And then he had come back to it. Voluntarily, spontaneously, of his own free will, the Marquis de Lantanac had left the forest, the shadows, safety, and freedom, to go back into frightful danger, undaunted. Gauvin had seen him do it twice, once when he had plunged into the fire at the risk of being engulfed in it, and once when he had descended the ladder which delivered him to his enemies, and which, though a ladder of safety for others, was for him a ladder of perdition. And why had he done that? To save three children. 
and what was going to be done to him. He was going to be guillotined. That nobleman, that prince, that old man, safe and triumphant, for escape is a triumph, had risked everything, endangered everything, placed everything in question for the sake of three children who were not his, were not members of his family, and did not belong to his caste. They were three poor children, encountered by chance, foundlings, strangers, shabby and barefoot. And in rescuing the children, he had haughtily offered his enemies his head, which had formerly been terrible and was now majestic. And what were his enemies going to do with it? Accept it. The Marquis de Lantanac had had a choice between the life of others and his own. In that superb option, he had chosen death. And it was going to be given to him. He was going to be killed. What a reward for heroism! To respond to a magnanimous act by a savage one. To give that shady aspect to the revolution. What degradation for the republic! While the man of prejudice and servitude, suddenly transformed, was returning to humanity, they, the men of deliverance and emancipation, were going to remain in civil war, in the routine of bloodshed, in fratricide. And the high divine law of forgiveness, abnegation, redemption, and self-sacrifice would remain for the combatants of error, but would not exist for the soldiers of truth. What? Were they not to vie with their enemies in magnanimity? Were they to resign themselves to the defeat of being the weakest when they were the strongest, of being murderers when they were victors, and of letting it be said that among the royalists there were those who saved children, while among the republicans there were those who killed old men? That great soldier, that powerful octogenarian, that unarmed fighter, stolen rather than captured, seized in the performance of a good action, imprisoned by his own consent, with the sweat of a grandiose devotion still on his brow, would be seen climbing the steps of the scaffold as though rising to an apotheosis. And when his head was placed beneath the guillotine, the souls of the three little angels he had saved would hover supplicatingly around it. And during that execution, dishonorable for the executioners, a smile would be seen on his face, and a blush of shame on the face of the Republic. And this would take place in the presence of Gauvin, the commander. Able to prevent it, he would refrain from doing so, and he would content himself with that haughty dismissal, it no longer concerns you. And he would not tell himself that in such cases abstention is complicity? And he would not realize that in such an infamous act the man who allows it to be done is worse than the man who does it, for he is a coward. But had he not promised that Lantanac would be killed? Had not he, Gauvin, the clement man, declared that Lantanac was an exception to his clemency? and that he would deliver him to Simordan. He had promised to sever that head, 
he was going to keep his promise. That was all. But was it the same head? Gauvin had hitherto seen in Lantanac only the barbaric fighter, the fanatic of royalty and feudalism, the slaughterer of prisoners, the murderer let loose by war, the man of blood. He did not fear that man. He would proscribe the proscriber. That implacable foe would find him implacable. Nothing could have been simpler. The path was laid out and ominously easy to follow. Everything was foreseen. He would kill the killer. He was in the straight line of horror. Suddenly, that straight line had been broken. An unforeseen turning had revealed a new horizon. A metamorphosis had taken place. An unexpected Lantanac had appeared on the scene. A hero had come out of the monster. More than a hero. A man. More than a soul. A heart. It was no longer a killer that Gauvin had before him, but a savior. Gauvin was overwhelmed by a flood of celestial light. Lantanac had struck him with a thunderbolt of magnanimity. And would Lantanac transfigured not transfigure Gauvin? What? Would that stroke of light produce no reaction? Would the man of the past go forward while the man of the future went backward? Would the man of barbarity and superstition suddenly spread his wings and fly, looking down at the man of the ideal crawling below him in mire and darkness? Would Gauvin wallow in ancient ferocity while Lantanac soared off into the sublime? And there was something else. His family. The blood he was about to shed, for allowing it to be shed was the same as shedding it himself, was his own. His grandfather was dead, but his granduncle was still alive, and that granduncle was the Marquis de Lantanac. Would not this grandfather, who was in the grave, rise up to prevent his brother from being sent there? Would he not order his grandson to respect that wreath of white hair, so closely related to his own halo? Was there not the indignant gaze of a specter between Gauvin and Lantanac? Was the goal of the revolution to denature man? Had it been carried out in order to break family ties and stifle humanity? Far from it. It was to affirm these supreme realities, not to deny them, that eighty-nine had risen. To overthrow the Bastille was to deliver humanity. To abolish feudalism was to found the family. Since the author is the point of departure and authority, and since authority is included in the author, there can be no other authority than paternity. Hence the legitimacy of the queen bee who creates her people, and who, being a mother, is a queen. Hence the absurdity of the kingman, who, not being the father of the people, cannot be its master. Hence the suppression of the king. Hence the revolution. What is all that? It is the family. It is humanity. It is the revolution. The revolution is the accession of the people, and, at bottom, the people is mankind.
It remained to be seen whether, when Lantanac had just returned to humanity, Gauvin was going to return to the family. It remained to be seen whether the uncle and the nephew were going to rejoin each other in a higher light, or whether the nephew would go backward in response to the uncle's advance. In the fervent debate between Gauvin and his conscience, the question seemed to pose itself thus, and the solution seemed to impose itself on him. He must save Lantanac. Yes, but what about France? At this point the bewildering problem suddenly took on a new aspect. France was at bay, open, disabled. She no longer had a moat. Germany was crossing the Rhine. She no longer had a wall. Italy was crossing the Alps and Spain the Pyrenees. She still had that great abyss, the ocean, an abyss that was in her favor. She could back up against it, and, gigantic, supported by the whole sea, fight the whole world. It was, after all, an impregnable position. But no, she was going to be barred from that position. The ocean was no longer hers. In the ocean, there was England. It was true that England did not know how to cross the channel. But a man was going to make a bridge for her. A man was going to hold out his hand to her. A man was going to say to Pitt, to Craig, to Cornwallis, to Dundas, to the pirates, Come! A man was going to shout, England, take France! And that man was the Marquis de Lantanac. He was now imprisoned. After three months of determined pursuit, he had finally been captured. The hand of the revolution had seized the accursed man. The clenched fist of ninety-three had taken the royalist murderer by the collar. As a result of that mysterious premeditation which intervenes in human affairs from above, it was in the dungeon of his own family that the parricide was now awaiting his punishment. The feudal man was in a feudal prison. The stones of his castle had risen up against him and closed in around him, and the man who had tried to surrender his country had been surrendered by his house. God had clearly arranged all this. The right hour had struck. The revolution had imprisoned the public enemy. He could no longer fight. He could no longer struggle. He could no longer do harm. In that Vendée, where there were so many arms, his was the only brain. Now that he was finished, the civil war would be finished. He had been captured. It was a tragic yet fortunate conclusion. After so much slaughter and carnage, he was there, the man who had killed, and it was now his turn to die. Surely Gauvin was not going to save him. Simordan, that is, ninety-three, now held Lantanac, that is, the monarchy. Was Gauvin going to deprive that iron grip of its prey? Lantanac, the man in whom that bundle of scourges called the past was concentrated, was in the tomb. The heavy, eternal door had closed behind him. Would Gauvin come to unlock it from the outside? 
the social malefactor was dead, and with him died revolt, fratricidal struggle, and bestial war. Was Govan going to bring him back to life? Oh, how that death's head would laugh! That specter would say, Good, I'm alive, you imbeciles! And he would resume his hideous work. He would again plunge, implacable and joyous, into the abyss of hatred and war. The next day, one would again see houses burned, prisoners massacred, wounded men killed, and women shot. And after all, was not Gauvin exaggerating that act which fascinated him? Three children had been facing death. Lantanac had saved them. But who had placed them in that danger? Was it not Lantanac? Who had put those cribs in that fire? Was it not Imanus? Who was Imanus? Lantanac's lieutenant. Responsibility always rests with the commander. Lantanac was therefore the incendiary and the murderer. What then had he done that was so admirable? He had not persisted. That was all. After having constructed a crime, he had recoiled from it. He had horrified himself. The mother's cry had awakened in him that old substratum of human pity, a kind of deposit of universal life which is in all souls, even the most sinister. Hearing that cry, he had reversed his direction. From the darkness into which he had been plunging, he had gone back into the light. After having committed a crime, he had undone it. His whole merit lay in not having been a monster to the end. And was he to be given everything in exchange for so little? Was he to be given space, the fields, the plains, air, and daylight? Was he to be given the forest, which he would use for banditry, freedom, which he would use for servitude, life, which he would use for death? As for trying to reach an agreement with him, attempting to treat with that haughty soul, offering him deliverance on condition that he refrain from any further hostility and revolt, what a mistake such an offer would be! What an advantage it would give him! What scorn he would show! How he would insult the question by his answer! He would say, Keep your shame for yourself. Kill me. There was nothing to do with him except kill him or set him free. He was a man of extremes. He was always ready to fly away or to sacrifice himself. He was both an eagle and a precipice, a strange soul. Kill him? What an anxiety! Free him? What a responsibility! With Lantanac saved, everything would have to be begun all over again with Vendée, as with a hydra whose heads have not been cut off. In the twinkling of an eye, and with the swiftness of a meteor, the flames extinguished by his disappearance would be rekindled. He would not rest until he had carried out his execrable plan to place the monarchy on the Republic and England on France like the cover on a tomb. 
To save Lantanac would be to sacrifice France. Lantanac's life would mean the death of a host of innocent men, women, and children who would be caught up in the Civil War. It would mean the landing of the English, the retreat of the Revolution, the sacking of villages, the rending of the people, the mutilation of Brittany. It would mean giving the prey back to the claws that had seized it. And in the midst of all sorts of uncertain glimmers and conflicting lights, Gauvin vaguely saw this problem rising from his reverie and posing itself to him. Should he set the tiger free? And then the question reappeared under its first aspect, the stone of Sisyphus, which is nothing other than man's quarrel with himself, rolled down again. Was Lantanac really a tiger? Perhaps he had been once, but was he still? Gauvin was undergoing those dizzying spirals of a mind turning in upon itself, which make our thoughts like snakes. Even after careful examination, could anyone deny Lantanac's devotion, his stoic self-abnegation, his superb disinterestedness? In the presence of the open jaws of civil war, he had affirmed his humanity. He had brought higher truth into a conflict of lower truths. He had proved that above all royalty, above all revolutions, above all earthly matters, there is the immense tenderness of the human soul, the protection which the strong owe to the weak, the salvation which those who are saved owe to those who are lost, and the paternity which all old men owe to all children. He had proved these magnificent things, and proved them by the gift of his life. He was a general, yet he had renounced strategy, battle, and revenge. He was a royalist, yet he had taken the king of France, a monarchy that was fifteen centuries old, and the old laws and ancient society he hoped to restore, weighed them in the balance against three ordinary little peasants, and found that the king, the throne, the scepter, and fifteen centuries of monarchy were light when compared to the weight of those three children's innocence. Was all that to count as nothing? Would the man who had done it remain a tiger and be treated as a wild animal? No. The man who had just illuminated the precipice of civil war by a divine action was not a monster. The sword-bearer had been changed into a light-bearer. The infernal Satan had again become the celestial Lucifer. Lantanac had redeemed all his past barbarities by an act of self-sacrifice. In destroying himself physically, he had saved himself morally. He had made himself innocent again. He had signed his own pardon. Does not the right of self-forgiveness exist? He was now venerable. Lantanac had just been extraordinary. It was now Gauvin's turn. Gauvin was called upon to answer him. The struggle between good and bad passions was making chaos in the world at that time. Dominating this chaos, Lantanac had just brought humanity out of it. It now remained for Gauvin to bring the family out of it. What was he going to do? Was he going to betray God's trust? 
No. I must save Lantanac, he thought. Then he said to himself, Yes, go on. Help the English. Desert. Pass over to the enemy. Save Lantanac and betray France. And he shuddered. Thy solution is no solution, O dreamer. Gauvin saw the sinister smile of the sphinx in the shadows. The situation was a kind of redoubtable crossroads, where conflicting truths met and clashed, and where man's three supreme ideas—humanity, family, country—confronted one another. Each of these voices spoke in turn, and each spoke the truth. How was he to choose? Each one seemed to have found the solution that would satisfy both wisdom and justice, and said, Do this. Was that what he ought to do? Yes. No. Reasoning said one thing, feeling said another. The two counsels were in opposition. Reasoning is only reason. Feeling is often conscience. The first comes from man, the second from a higher source. That is why feeling has less clarity and more power. And yet what strength there is in stern reason! Gauvin was undecided. Cruel perplexities. Two abysses opened before him. Should he let the Marquis die, or should he save him? He had to plunge into one or the other. Which of those two abysses was duty? It was indeed duty that had to be dealt with. Duty had arisen, sinister before Simordan, formidable before Gauvin. Simple before the first, multiple, diverse, and tortuous before the second. Midnight struck, then one o'clock in the morning. Without realizing it, Gauvin had gradually approached the entrance of the breach. The fire was now dying down, and now gave off only a diffuse glow. The plateau on the other side of the tower caught its reflections. It would occasionally become visible, then fade away when the fire was covered by smoke. This glow, revived spasmodically and cut off by sudden shadows, threw objects out of proportion and made the sentries of the camp look like phantoms. Absorbed in his meditations, Gauvin distractedly watched the smoke effacing the fire, and the fire effacing the smoke. Those appearances and disappearances of the light before his eyes were analogous to the appearances and disappearances of the truth in his mind. Suddenly, between two swirling clouds of smoke, a tongue of flame rose from the dying fire, brightly illuminated the top of the plateau, and cast a crimson glow on a wagon there. Gauvin looked at the wagon. It was surrounded by horsemen wearing gendarmes' hats. It seemed to him that it was the same wagon he had seen through Gaychamp's telescope several hours earlier, at sundown. There were men on the wagon, apparently unloading it. What they were taking off seemed to be heavy, and from time to time it made a clanging sound. It would have been difficult to say what it was. It looked like large pieces of timber. 
two of the men took down a packing case, which, judging from its form, contained a triangular object. The tongue of flame subsided, and everything was again enveloped in shadow. Staring straight ahead, Govan remained thoughtful before what was there in the darkness. Lanterns had been lighted, and men were coming and going on the plateau, but the moving shapes were indistinct. Besides, from below and from the other side of the ravine, Govan could see only what was on the very edge of the plateau. Voices were talking, but he could not distinguish the words. Now and then he heard something strike against wood, and also a metallic grinding like the sound of a scythe being sharpened. Two o'clock struck. Slowly, and like a man who is inclined to take two steps forward and three steps back, Govan walked toward the breach. The sentry presented arms when he approached, having recognized his cloak and braided hood in the semi-darkness. Govan entered the room on the ground floor, which had been transformed into a guard room. There was a lantern hanging from the ceiling. It gave just enough light to enable one to walk across the room without stepping on the soldiers who were lying on straw, most of them asleep. This was their bed for the night. They had been fighting a few hours earlier. The grape-shot had not all been swept off the floor, so there were bits of lead and iron which troubled their sleep, but they were tired and needed rest. That room had been a horrible place. An attack had taken place there. Men had roared, howled, gnashed their teeth, struck frenzied blows, killed, and died. Many of the sleepers' fellow soldiers had fallen dead on the floor on which they were now lying, and the straw that served their sleep had soaked up their comrades' blood. Now it was all over. The flow of blood had been stopped. The sabers had been wiped off. The dead were dead, and the survivors were sleeping peacefully. Such is war. And then, tomorrow, everyone will sleep the same sleep. When Govan entered, some of these men stood up, including the officer in command of the post. Govan pointed to the door of the dungeon, and said to the officer, Open it. The bolts were drawn back, and the door opened. Govan entered the dungeon. The door closed behind him.